0: This morning we're going to visit again the passage that we were looking at last week from 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. So follow along with me, uh, as is our custom, we use the English Standard Version translation. But the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says... I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let's pray again. Father, give us uh, the measure of your Holy Spirit that we truly need uh, to understand these words clearly, to see them in their original context, And then to be able to gather out of them those truths that transcend the original context and really apply to your people throughout all the ages. Uh, We would ask for this because your word written is your voice to us, to guide us and to guard us and to direct us, uh, to always protect what is sacred in your sight and to always promote what brings about your glory and our good. And so we pray, give us hearing ears, uh, listening ears, and obedient hearts to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is our second week looking at this passage, and again, I want us to think about the responsibilities of elders, the elders of the congregation, and then the responsibility of the congregation to pray for its leaders. The church has a very serious calling. The Word of God describes the church as being the pillar and the buttress of the truth, meaning that Christ has purchased the church and then purposed the church to be the very presence and messenger and minister of truth in a broken and fallen world. And for that reason, the church as a whole, every member of the church, have been purchased by Christ, and then purposed by Christ unto this very, very important ministry. Every one of us is to be a messenger, and every one of us is to be a minister of the truth, especially in a culture that has rejected the reign and the rule of truth. Now, the elders then have responsibility for the church as a whole, uh, to shepherd the church, to guide the church, to equip the church, and to train the church. And therefore, we see how very, very serious the calling of the elders must be. They have this tremendously significant calling to enable the church to be all that the church should be and to the purpose of being messengers of the truth. We're reminded of that seriousness as we look at Hebrews 13, verse 7 and verse 17. We looked at these verses last week, but reading them again, where the writer says to the people of God, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So once again, uh, the main message of what we're trying to say this morning can be stated this way, because the responsibilities of the elders to lead the church are eternally serious before God, the church, the family of God, the people of God must pray faithfully for its leaders. The elders need the prayers of the people of God. Now, to review where we are in this passage, Paul has given To Timothy, a series of instructional guidance about elders in particular. Uh, We're treating them according to the six categories that we can find in this passage. So last week, we considered first their calling, and then secondly, their honor, and thirdly, their accountability, with corresponding uh, admonitions and encouragements for us to pray for them in this regard. Now, this morning, we want to look at the fourth category, their ordination, Uh, the fifth, their welfare, and then sixth and finally their discernment. We want to look at each of these categories and then apply again the matter of prayer uh, to teach us how we ought to apply the matter of prayer to the calling, uh, the service, the responsibilities of the elders. So we're going to be picking up these last three again, which would be their ordination and their welfare and their discernment. So beginning then in verse 22. Uh, the ordination of elders is what Paul is speaking to with reference uh, as he speaks to Timothy. He says, he's warning Timothy, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Well, to begin with, we need some preliminary understanding and some background to this this idea of the laying on of hands. The verse itself is a reference to ordination. There are not many references or instances to the laying on of hands in the New Testament. But among the several we do have, uh, there's this earlier reference in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. It's to Timothy's own ordination. Paul says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So when you look at the action of the elders, the the laying on of hands, it's evident that this is an official way of setting someone apart for official service. Uh, Official meaning office, as when you speak of the office of a deacon or of an elder. And so we need to understand that there's a threefold significance to this act of the laying on of hands. Uh, What does it represent? First, it's an action that symbolizes consecration, consecration. Uh, being set apart for sacred service, uh, setting apart by the Lord, but also by his church, through the elders of the church, the leaders who are to rule the church and to direct the affairs of the church, This an act of consecration by them. Secondly, it's an act that also symbolically represents an official recognition by the Lord and his church of a man being called into service in this way. So, ordination says in effect that the church recognizes you, the church sees in you the one who is being ordained, both the calling of Christ to serve Christ and his church, whether that be an elder or deacon, and that the church believes that Christ and God have set you apart for this service, so it represents an official uh, recognition of what Christ is doing and what the church is doing then thirdly it symbolically represents the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for that service and then the willingness of the church to be served and to be led by those who are being ordained. So as elders lay on their hands, it symbolically represents the idea that the spirit of leadership and the spirit of service uh, that's been given to the elders, that same spirit and empowerment of that spirit is now being given To the one who is called to serve the one who's being ordained in order that that person may be empowered to do what god has called him to do so that's what ordination is it's a laying on of the hands to signify the official calling by christ to official service for christ in the service of his church now we then look at what paul says specifically to timothy and we recognize first ordination is more than the ordinary service believers. All believers are called to serve and all are called to use the gifts the Holy Spirit has given to them. For instance, every believer is supposed to be active in the purpose of the church. That is why all are called to do good works. We see this in Ephesians 2.10. This is said of all Christians. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. We also would say that all are given the whole armor of God. If we were to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, and the whole armor of God passage, we would see that every single believer has been called into and equipped by the armor of God for the sake of engaging properly in the fight of spiritual warfare. All believers are called to fight the good fight of the faith. But then we also see that all of the saints are to be equipped for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 14, especially the phrase, the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So all are called into ministry and all are to to be equipped for ministry. And then finally, Paul teaches in in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Every Christian has been gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve the common good of all. And that's why we say all believers are called to serve. But not all are called to be elders or deacons. And even within those who are called to be elders, uh, what we call in our own church situation, not a council, but a session, not all elders are called to earn their living by the gospel. Not all elders are called to full-time teaching and preaching. But all who are called to serve as elders, which another title would be the overseers, another title would be the shepherd teachers, uh, and then all the who are called to be deacons, these are specifically set apart by this act of ordination involving the laying on of hands to with all the symbolism and seriousness that this action represents. Now, that is what Paul is speaking of here, how ordination of new official leaders of the church, whether elders or deacons, is a very serious matter. It's not something trivial. It's not something to be done in haste. Essentially, Paul is saying to Timothy, don't rush to the selection election, and ordination of new elders and deacons. Don't be hasty. Now, Timothy may have felt the urgency to do so. I mean, after all, given all of the problems that we have seen going on in the church at Ephesus, we can see the need to get new leadership in place. Here's a way of describing it. If this was the musical, the music man, and if Ephesus were River City, then the situation was calling out, you got trouble, my friend, right here, I say, trouble right here in River City. Timothy was facing that trouble with that kind of voice in his mind, perhaps, that kind of voice saying, there's a lot of trouble here that's got to be addressed. Feeling that, he may then have felt a sense of urgency to act quickly in order to carry out what Paul has charged him to do to stop the bad teachers and the bad teaching, to stop the bad practices, to wage the spiritual warfare he needed to engage in, and to make sure that the men and women of the congregation were actively praying in a manner that's godly. But even where the need is great, Paul's statement is this. It's against hasty ordination. It's a warning. It's a serious mistake to put unprepared people in to the ordained office and that's why we think about chapter three we think about paul stating the qualifications for elders and deacons that's why paul stated no recent converts and let them first be tested so paul is here reinforcing those principles with timothy those who are going to be ordained need to be ready they need to be equipped they need to be trained They need to have some actual ministry experience under their belts before they serve. Now, let's think then about hasty ordination and ask ourselves, what is the problem? What is it like when there is haste toward ordination? That is, what is it like when men are called to serve as elders in particular as the overseers and shepherds of the congregation, but the process did not follow the biblical pattern of training, equipping, and preparing for service. Imagine this situation, one that actually occurs within our own denomination, one that actually occurs in in lots of Bible-believing churches in our nation. What would it be like to be called as a pastor to a church in the Deep South. And as you get to know your elder board. You find out that you have several elders who have been on the board for a number of years. But these men were never trained biblically. They were elected primarily because they were known within uh, the, the community as good businessmen. Yet they had never led a Bible study. They had never taught a Sunday school class. They had no history of discipling or shepherding anyone within the church family. And then in this present season of the George Floyd incident and in the aftermath of everything that has happened, you hear hear these elders pray in ways that reveal deeply embedded racist attitudes, attitudes that indicate They would always want blacks and whites to be separated, even within the household of the faith. Don't think that we don't have pastors who are now facing the realization of these kinds of things to the breaking of their hearts. But this just illustrates why the people of God must pray for their elders We must pray for elders to always approach this matter of selection and election and training and ordination of new leadership and especially the elders with the utmost concern and seriousness. Elders are responsible for themselves, but they are also responsible for the future leadership of the church. And the future of the church is called to be the witness and messenger of the truth. We must have elders who are themselves fully committed to biblical truth in every way. Remember, those who do not love do not know God, because God is love. And if elders ordain men who fail to love all other human beings as they love themselves, if they fail to lead people into the full meaning of the second greatest commandment, then, then those elders, any of us who've ever done that, we share in the sins of bad men by laying our hands on them in the act of ordination. We've given a spiritual endorsement to those that should never have held the office of elder. And that's, that's the danger, that's the concern, that's the situation that Paul does not want Timothy to fall into. He warns Timothy to be pure in the sense of being innocent in this regard. And likewise, we must pray that our own elders uh, within our church here, within our presbytery, within our denomination, would never be hasty in the laying on of hands. They must do their job diligently in the selection, the election, the training and equipping of new leaders within the church. Pray, pray for this. And then we consider their welfare and health, and and this this category is brought to mind in terms of what Paul says, as it looks like it's parenthetically addressed to Timothy in a very personal way, what he says in verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, here we see Paul's very evident concern for Timothy and Timothy's physical well-being. The New Testament evidence seems to indicate that Timothy was not a physically robust person and very different in this regard from the Apostle Paul. Paul seems to have had a very, very strong constitution. Think about the New Testament evidence in this regard. All the physical abuse that the Apostle Paul had endured during his ministry lifetime. Second Corinthians chapter 11, listen to what Paul says in testimony to this. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night, or a night and a day, I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is why we see in the Apostle Paul a very robust physical constitution. And then we have quite the contrast with Timothy. But notice, Paul is sympathetic toward Timothy. He is very concerned for his spiritual son's delicate health of unspecified stomach issues and other frequent ailments. Now, out of this concern, we can draw several specific important lessons that Paul is really teaching, that the scriptures are really teaching us here. The first would be this. Challenged health does not disqualify a man from ministry. Let me repeat that again. Challenged health does not disqualify a man from ministry. Timothy was not like Paul. Paul loved Timothy. Paul had confidence in Timothy. That even though Timothy had these frequent ailments, there was no real impediment to Timothy being a faithful shepherd to the church. In fact, it is men like Timothy who very often better understand the truth that we are all jars of clay. We are all earthen vessels. That our ability to minister is because of the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to our own abilities. Challenged health does not disqualify from ministry. Then a second point here, Paul is using wine as medicine, not really speaking to the beverage use of wine. Uh, Paul isn't speaking to Timothy for the sake of Christian liberty. Most scholars believe that questionable water, water that was not entirely sanitary, was likely the culprit in affecting Timothy's health. He needed to drink wine in addition to water For that reason, wine was a common beverage. Now, today's context in America is very, very different. We have perfectly pure and healthy water. We might say something like this in our context, stomach bothering you too much? You need to cut way back on the coffee and the caffeine. You need to drink a whole lot more water, and no, not more wine. But setting the beverage use of wine aside, Here's the thing I really want you to see. Paul counsels a medicinal approach, not a miraculous approach, to Timothy's medical problem. That is the deepest significance of what Paul says to Timothy in verse 23. Paul is counseling, advising a medicinal approach, not a miraculous approach to Timothy's medical problem if you see this then you can see that this means two things first even in the apostolic age where gifts of healing existed even where we know that paul himself had exercised the gift of healing miraculous healing was not a normative part of the normative ministry of the church Now, in my college days, when I was somewhat into the charismatic movement, I was puzzled by Timothy's health problem. Why didn't Paul just heal him? Or why didn't Timothy go and find someone in the church at Ephesus with the gift of healing? Of course, I had heard among charismatics that if you don't have enough faith, then you can't really be healed. But certainly Timothy would have had enough faith. Raising such questions helped me jump out of the sinking charismatic ship. For when you see a faith healer who wears glasses, you realize that something isn't on the right track theologically. What you realize is this, not every physical sickness, not every ailment gets healed by some miracle of God. In fact, even the Apostle Paul, when he first went to uh, Galatia, uh, testifies that he was very, very sick. Galatians 4, 13, 14, he says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. Uh, that's why Paul's medical advice to Timothy is so very significant. God has ordained most healings by ordinary means. I'm gonna say that again. God has ordained most healings by ordinary means, which include the use of proper medicine and proper rest and proper eating and drinking. And we need to make it part of our Christian practice to have a godly confidence in the ordinary means, to know that God ordinarily heals through medicine and through rest and through proper diet. The second thing we should say in regards to this is that what Paul says to Timothy here should teach us something about how we should pray for someone when someone is sick. It isn't wrong to pray for healing Uh, hoping for miraculous healing. But if that is the only way you know how to pray, Lord God, he's sick, please heal him, please heal him right now, please take this away from him immediately. If that's the only way you know how to pray for someone who is sick or needing surgery or is facing a very rough medical prognosis, then it is almost a certainty that you don't understand how God works to make us godly how God works to sanctify us and our lives as Christians. You may not understand that God does his greatest work in us in the midst of our trials and our tribulations. No one, listen carefully, no one ever got godlier. No one ever got more conformed to the image of Christ without being deeply tested. What we all need is a deeper dosage of what the writer says in Hebrews chapter 12, where we are told that, quote, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's verse 10. And then this discipline, quote, yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That's verse 11. And discipline in this context means being dealt with, in a manner that, it, that causes us to face severe trials and temptations and difficulties and afflictions. So how should we pray? That in the season of illness and affliction, trials and temptations, that God will take a suffering brother or sister into a deeper dependence on Christ and his grace for the sake of his spiritual growth. Don't ever see someone who is facing surgery, someone who's facing a difficult medical diagnosis, someone who's facing a season of being physically afflicted. Don't ever approach that in prayer and pray for them to be quickly delivered. No. Pray that God would use this time to conform them to the image of Christ, that which has the godliness that is useful for this time and for all eternity. Pray for what is truly the most significant thing in their lives, and that is that they would grow increasingly conformed to the image of Christ, to the glory of God. Finally, the elders and their discernment. We come to verses 24 and 25, where Paul writes to Timothy, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, but even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, Paul has given Timothy words of advice here, words of wisdom in terms of discernment about what what Timothy sees and will see in the lives of the believers there in Ephesus, but especially a discernment pointing toward the present and future leaders of the church. This is, this is advice on how to know and to understand people. We should also then see that these words connect back to the earlier things that Paul is saying to Timothy about hasty ordination, but also going back even further about charges that might be made against elders. Paul's point to Timothy is this. Exercise a cautious form of discernment. As we pay close attention to the behavior of people in the church family, what you see in their lives, especially in considering those that might become elders or deacons, and therefore weeding out those whose lives demonstrate they're not truly godly. So, verse 24, what Paul is addressing there in the first place is something like this. He's addressing people who talk the talk, but not walk the walk. That is to say, in spite of the fact that they claim that they're Christians, they profess to be Christians, their sins are conspicuous. Paul's already mentioned this earlier. He gave a couple of examples. He he mentions men like Hymenius and Alexander in chapter 1, verse 20, men who were part of the church, yet men who made shipwreck of their faith, uh, men who were blasphemous. Their sins were conspicuous. But there are others whose sins are not So obvious, but their sins will show up later. That is why Paul says to Timothy, don't be hasty. These others who are not obviously sinful, yet given time, their lives will show up to reveal who they truly are. Uh, In one of the places where I served pastorally a number of years ago, I was doing officer training training. Uh, There was a guy who really wanted to be a deacon. And so he went through the training. He seemed like a smart, committed guy. He would take a a lot of the pastoral staff to lunch from time to time. It was always his treat. Uh, He always asked good questions about our lives, how we were doing, how the church was doing. We would ask him about his life, his career. We knew his wife and children within the church. Everything he said indicated that he had a military background, but that his work was classified and he couldn't really speak about it. So one of my sons and I uh, one day spent a great day at his parents' farm way out in the country, a day of shooting all sorts of exotic military firearms. Now, not deer rifles and not shotguns that you might shoot at pheasants. No, military pistols, M-16 rifles. And my favorite was this Uzi, which is, you know, an Israeli submachine gun. That day solidified my thinking that here was a military guy now doing classified work. A man who really loved his country, still ready to fight and die for his country, but who was also serious about serving Christ and his church. Now, when he was examined to be a candidate for the office of deacon, he didn't make it. Uh, really only on the grounds that his doctrine wasn't yet strong enough where it needed to be. So the advice given to him was, you were on the way, but not yet. Well, the next year, we really didn't need any new officers. So it was really about the third year. In the third year, we began to see that his marriage was having some problems. We also began to notice that his church attendance was less consistent. And during that third year, what was hidden became conspicuous. And the final outcome was a four-year federal prison sentence in a federal prison, not for falsely impersonating military personnel, but for impersonating the role of a financial investor with family members and with others who trusted him, from whom he swindled a tidy sum of $2.5 one and a half of that from his own wife's parents' retirement funds. That was the biggest lesson an example to me of why we should not be hasty. Because the sins of some may not be conspicuous at first, but given enough time, they do seem to show up. It, it seemed to be like what we read about in the Law of Moses, Numbers 32, 23. be sure your sin will find you out. And then Paul speaks of the other side, people and their good. Paul says that good works are conspicuous. That is because good works are good things that are done genuinely to help other people. And not every good work that you might want to do for someone can be kept anonymous. Uh, Some of the people you help by their good works are going to uh, advertise this. They're going to tell people, and it's going to point to this fruit in your life because people publicly demonstrate they're grateful for how they have been helped. But then Paul also confidently asserts that even those good works that are not conspicuous, even those can't remain hidden, and that is because they are known to God. And when God wants them to be known They will be made known. Basically, Paul is reminded Timothy to follow the teachings of Jesus as he works with the church to have quality leadership. In Matthew 7, 16 to 20, Jesus says this, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Here is a significant reason to pray for your elders, to be men of discernment, men who are able to detect false wolves, men who can distinguish bad fruit from good fruit, men who will be diligent in these matters and who will never let their guard down on behalf of Christ and his church and the truth. Because the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And the elders have a serious responsibility in shepherding the church. And this is why the household of God, Christian believers, must pray for their leaders. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us all to so understand the church. And the fact that your purchased church by the death of your son is a purposed church. For the sake of being in this world and to this culture, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A culture that has rejected the reign and rule of truth and which delights in claiming there is no ultimate truth. So, Father, help us as a church to be all that you've called us to be. Enable us to be faithfully praying for the elders of the church to be all that you've called them to be that we can all be properly ministers and messengers of the truth. To the glory of the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, even unto Jesus in his name. Amen. I'd like us to close then with one of my favorite hymns, number 521. Follow along as as I read these words. Uh, And it says, it starts with my hope. I trust this is your hope as well. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, My anchor holds within the veil on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne on Christ, the solid rock. I stand all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, receive these final words as the Lord's encouragement For us and to us as we go forth to serve him be at peace among yourselves brothers while you admonish the idle encourage the faint-hearted help the weak be patient with them all rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you and now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you as faithful, he will surely do it. Amen.